Hello, welcome along to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. We are here again discussing all things NHS and health related with a political twist. I'm Steve Bryan. I represent Winchester in Hampshire, currently chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. Uh, good morning. I'm Helen Stokes Lampard. I'm a frontline general practitioner in the Midlands. I'm chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and chair of the National Academy for Social Prescribing. Great to be here. Great. So this is episode three, believe it or not, Helen. Um, last time we had the brilliant Dame Callie Palmer, your fellow Dame, uh, <laughs> on talking all things cancer special. And uh, do you know what? It was our best listened to pod yet. In fact, uh, we had almost double the number of listeners that we had previously. So that's fantastic. And thanks again to Callie for coming on. Yeah, she was great. It was really good fun. And it was good to have a focus on such an important topic that touches everybody's lives. I mean, you know, as a GP on a daily basis, patients coming through the door one of the things in my mind is it could this be cancer and seeing it through her eyes from sort of national director point of view was really helpful um, and I hope it raised a bit of awareness and uh, she was it was good fun Thanks. she was really good fun wasn't she so we've had great feedback from that really good dms on twitter and emails from people with suggesting ideas that we might talk about and all that so it's really great so thanks so much you know there's no point in us doing a pod if you don't listen to it you it seems to have found its niche and uh, we're really grateful please remember to like click the like button on uh, your platform your podcast podcast platform of choice and apparently that helps us um i don't know how but apparently it does anyway where are we going to start this week then h Oh, I'm afraid we better talk about industrial action, Steve, um, yeah. much as I don't want to. But uh, end of last week, we heard that the junior doctors in England have set out uh, dates for their next set of industrial actions. So that's a four day walkout from Tuesday, the 11th of April. Um, now, that's a step up from their three day action from a few weeks ago. Now, three weeks ago in the three day action that led to the cancellation or postponement of 175,000 procedures, operations, appointments or tests across the NHS in England. Four days will obviously have a much greater impact. And what you need to clock is the timing of this. It'll happen after the four day bank holiday weekend for Easter and run into the following weekend. So effectively, you'll have 10 days where the NHS in England is not firing on all cylinders. And that is of grave concern to lots of people. And so there's an awful lot of work going on behind the scenes. And last night, uh, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, along with a lot of other uh, significant medical and health bodies, has urged all the parties to get to the negotiation table and for everybody to enter with a spirit of collaboration, as being prepared to be flexible. I mean, that's what, at the end of the day, that's what negotiation is all about. Jeepers, that is a worry, isn't it? So we had uh, this week in Parliament, we had the, something called the Liaison Committee. So all the chairs of the select committees come together. It's called the Liaison Committee. And um, that that basically asks questions to one person only, and that's the Prime Minister. And yeah. I was there. It was my turn this this time to ask questions. And I asked about where we are with COVID catch-up, you know, the mm. elective catch-up. And, you know, we had what, some 7 million people on the waiting list, people coming in all the time, even though we're getting getting through some of the older backlogs and I think you know he said we've all but eliminated the two-year waits whoopee um and uh, you know by April the plan is was to eliminate the 18-month waits and then we move on from there I think the IFS mm. said that we were you know within touching distance of by April which let's face it is this weekend um getting mm -hmm. to getting to eliminate those weights but as I asked Prime Minister you know how worried would he be that this industrial action is merely setting that back and from what you've said about the number of cancellations it can only be doing that can't it then yeah. it adds to the workload challenge that the jds the junior doctors feel 
Absolutely. I mean, so we, we think about it in sort of two big ways when we look at the NHS. There's the urgent care, that's the on-the-day stuff, and there's the planned care. So you inevitably suspend or postpone your planned care, and that's where the waiting lists come in, to free you up to focus on the urgent stuff that has to be done today. So the knock-on effect takes weeks and months to work through. So everyone will pull together, you know, the consultants, the GPs, the, the other healthcare professionals throughout the NHS will pull together to keep patients safe on the individual days of the action but it's the subsequent weeks and months where the backlog will have just got greater where the problems will really be felt i mean we hope that we'll be able to cope and mitigate on the days now th there's a system in place where if the nhs is really falling over on its knees there are emergency buttons effectively that can be pushed to get doctors back off the picket line and in and indeed the nurses did that uh, when you know specific situations happened in individual hospitals um but you know, this is a, to, to take industrial action on this scale is a measure of just how angry, frustrated uh, and upset junior doctors are. And of course, this is a ripple through the system. And we're seeing it nationally with the impact on so many services and so many people are feeling discontent at the moment. Uh, but the junior doctors have got a particular um, very strong claim. So you, you must liaise with them. I mean, you talk mm. with them as a, as a fellow clinician. So let's unpack this. So mm. that, that anger, that unhappiness mm. is not all about money, is it? No, I mean, the juniors have got a very strong specific query about money because their pay has fallen behind over a period of about 14 years. And they're now about 35% behind where they would have been had the trajectory of then continued. Now, Hence, that, that's their 35% that's ask. That's specific, yeah. I get that, yeah. yeah. But, but of course, the anger and frustration is so much greater. We've got a workforce that is understaffed. We've got challenges in the NHS with technology. We've got challenges with infrastructure. And I think there's a big thing about feeling valued for individuals. Now, Ironically, you know, doctors are some of the most loved and trusted in individuals in society as a profession, but that has eroded over time. And the systems that used to wrap around and look after people working crazy hours and taking huge responsible decisions have also been eroded. So this, for me, there's something really important about valuing people better, looking after people, so people who are doing shift work or unsociable work, making sure, yeah, that you can get a hot meal at four o'clock in the morning, that you can, your car, you can get from your car to the building where you work safely at night that you have got somewhere that's safe to leave your valuables or to go and catch a, a nap um, after a crazy shift um, and those things used to be available certainly they were there when I was a junior doctor and we don't have them now so that's the clinical bit of it and then the politics obviously because we do health with the political twist Indeed. um so the politics of it I mean it's difficult isn't it I mean I, I said to the prime minister at, at said liaison committee this week that he is gaining a reputation for a bit of a problem solver and you know mm. with the nurses yep. the, agenda, the agenda for change group basically mm. um, of which the nurses are the biggest group that you know they seem to have reached a settlement and uh, they're putting that out to the unions to to agree it um we'll talk about in a minute about how they pay mm. for that uh but with the junior doctors I I mean, we talked about this last time, didn't we, a bit? But, I mean, that negotiation with the BMA's Junior Doctors Committee, that's a tough nut to crack, isn't it? They're, they're, they're a tough bunch. Well, you know, anyone who works in a trades union is, is, is tough. You have to be. You, you go into the, you know, anybody going into a negotiation should be doing it with a spirit of understanding, going in with a high ask, but knowing what you're prepared to accept and how everyone saves face on a way out. Because at the end of the day, you've got to have an exit strategy before you enter a negotiation. I mean, clearly, you don't, you don't go you know, to try and buy a house without knowing what you're really prepared to pay for it in the same way you don't go into trade union negotiations. So I think I think we can't do a disservice to any of our colleagues in uh, the RCN or any of the other huge uh, healthcare unions. The 
the the difference I think with the junior doctors is that they have majored on pay and only on pay in terms of the ask that we're hearing externally. I mean, I know that on the front line, what my junior doctor colleagues need is more than just pay. It's a wraparound supportive structure that touches many parts of their training pathways and the support they get. Um, I really hope that the negotiations that are happening in private or the discussions that are happening in private, we know they're not in negotiation at the moment, but the discussions are much wider than just the headline figures on pay because we can't have medical exceptionalism. We can't see have doctors seen as somehow different, better or special compared to other healthcare professionals or indeed anyone else in society. You know, we're all human beings. We're all part of a complex civilized society and we work in an area that's paid for by general taxation. We have to work within those confines. Yeah, it's interesting. Isn't it? So I just on the wider point on pay then. So with respect to to the nurses and, and what have you, I mean, I was asking the prime minister about that this week because, mm. you know, I know the, the academy are concerned about and across the NHS they're concerned about how this is going to be paid for because yeah. it hasn't been set out it hasn't been mm-hmm. defined by ministers so you know if it just comes out of existing budgets bearing in mind some of that is in year so in this year uh, then you know efficiencies no no efficiency comes through in a matter of days does it but if you this is what the, the health secretary said this week he said this week nurses ambulance crews physiotherapists and other non-medical NHS staff will begin to vote in trade union ballots on the government's pay offer hugely positive after weeks of talks this fair and balanced offer recognizes the vital role these hard-working nhs staff play while protecting our commitment to halve inflation i urge union members to accept i'm work this keep it i'm working with treasury to ensure my department has the money it needs to fully fund this pay offer which will include additional funding and reprioritizing existing budgets this is on top of the existing funding we've already made available for a pay increase of up to three and a half percent in 23-24 i want to be clear there'll be no impact to frontline services or quality of care as as a result of this offer so you know that i guess that's said to reassure the unions as they go to their ballot um but we're still not clear are we it seems like yeah. there's a i mean the prime minister said this week something along the lines of, you know i'm not going to get get in between negotiation between treasury and the department of health but i mean i would have thought as first lord to the treasury that's literally what what he does but um <laughs> that, that, that is, uh, so yeah i, I, I there, there's worry in the nhs right the academy yeah. are worried about how it's going to be paid for yeah we're really worried i mean i think that's fair to say because we know just how stretched frontline services are already and and you know so there's the in year but let's be clear we've got just over 24 hours left of the in-year, um, you know, 20, yeah, that yeah, we're into yeah, the new financial true. year from the weekend. So that, uh, and, so, you know, budgets are closed and finished. I mean, there is no money to pay anything extra. The money's spent and wrapped up. So I don't quite know how that works for, for, for the current financial year. Um, for next financial year, soon to be, um, then, yeah, they, they have baked in 3.5%, which is great. It, you need an extra chunk a big extra chunk to make up the difference on these these salaries and i mean that's not factoring in whatever is settled for the junior doctors there are still settlements to be made for other doctors as the, the consultants the uh, specialist doctors and the gps and another thing just to throw into the mix is that the gps are desperately worried about the whatever settlement is made for the nursing and allied healthcare professionals because the money they had last year didn't include anything extra gps often get forgotten and they expect to just find the money for their existing resources even when the rest of the nhs has existing resource and that simply means for a practice of the size of mine you know we we've got over 100 members of staff if you start giving pay rises that are unbudgeted of several percent you're actually talking about reducing headcount or not replacing people when somebody leaves and that's really scary because it just means then we can offer less effective services at a time 
when attitudes and worry is, is that services really aren't good enough. So we are in a complex pickle. And for me, red lines about what's going on with negotiations are both that money can't come from within existing services and that we can't put patient safety in jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 complex pickle. Very good. Dr. Hansex Lampard, <laughs> complex pickle. Anyway, on the on the subject of pickles, uh, let's take a quick breather and then we're going to come back and talk about very much a related subject. So this week, it has been reported public satisfaction with health service drops to record low. So this is this is Helen, because we have this British social attitude survey, yeah. which has been going since 1983. So it's pretty much the gold standard, the public's view of the health service. It says that just 29 percent of the public said they were satisfied with NHS in 2022. Waiting time, staff shortage is the biggest concern. So that's seven percentage points down on last year and a drop from the 2010 high of 70% satisfaction. And if you then look, what's I guess even more worrying about this is that this was taken, this survey was taken in the autumn. So before yeah. the winter months crisis that we had in A&E and, you know, those who said that they're quite or very satisfied, hospital outpatients, 45%, inpatient care, 35%, general practice, you guys, 35%, A&E, 30%, Poor old dentistry down on just 27%. So this is a worry, right? Uh, the, the public's belief and faith in the NHS is taking a hit. Yes. I mean, this is, to be honest, this is no surprise to me at all. Just come was... across in the consulting room, people. Absolutely. Pensions. Absolutely. I think the GPs, you know, the last year, the biggest drop was in general practice. This year, it's the turn of A&E to have the biggest drop. And dentistry has been languishing low for several years. And, you know, the reasons this isn't difficult to work out, is it? You know, we see it on the front head, you know, the headlines of newspapers week in, week out. We see the dissatisfaction with those working within the service wanting to get out or taking industrial action. So we have got a major problem here. And there's some fundamental issues about how much the nation is prepared to invest in its health and care system. Um, and that's a complicated equation. That's something we want. We, we try and tease out in conversations. Um, there's also about expectations, and we've made a lot of changes, certainly through the pandemic, we've made massive changes in the way we, we deliver care, whether that's doing more remotely, whether that's offering care, some things online, and we haven't taken patients on that journey with us, we haven't involved them enough in the conversation, so that there are massive swathes of patients who haven't clocked that they can do a lot of stuff online which they could never do before, whether that's via the NHS app or it's online consulting, or that actually they can help in their care in the same way they help with their banking by putting information into the bank so that you have fewer people at the counter so the banks can run more efficiently. The NHS works more efficiently if you put information in to help us. So your, your regular health check, your high blood pressure check, please take your blood pressure yourself over the next week or so, give us the reading. And then you don't need a doctor then to help you with the review. One of our other team can help you. And that saves me from doing your blood pressure check because actually I don't need to do that. And I can spend time with somebody who's got something complicated or more difficult to deal with. And that's about using our resources better. But, but can, I chuck taken... a, can I chuck a devil's advocate in here? As I can. Do, that's as what I, we're here for. As I do. Um, so I do wonder, though, you know, you mm. see this. So I'm a constituency MP. I, I am not sure of correspondence from the good people of Winston and Chandler's Fort Blessing. Uh, when I hear from them about the NHS, yeah, you know, sometimes I hear frustrations yeah. uh, reporting what they've seen nationally. Yeah. Uh, sometimes that's politically loaded, let's be yeah. honest. Uh, but often their experiences of the local health service is anything, anything 
but negative. It's yep. extremely positive. Yeah. And I and I send those anonymized messages sometimes onto the chief executive of the trust because it, I know it really gives them a boost. Yeah. So I just wonder, is this, you know, is this sort of jumped on by those who want to do down the NHS because their agenda is, you know, it's all terrible and it shouldn't be funded by taxpayers and, you know, all that. Uh, and, and is it jumped on by the sort of cynical mind of the British press with the with their negative mindset, the opposite of the growth mindset that we talk about here with our children? You know, is it is it that they've got, I, I sound like Prince Harry. Um, talking about, about, oh, my God. That's okay. Just, that's just reminded me. I, I had a dream about Prince Harry last night. Should we save your dreams for another time? Steve? No, no, but, but you know what? I okay, Prince Harry, right? Is this safe? I mean, to, is this safe to broadcast? Yeah, safe to broadcast. I, some of the things he's come out with in his book or whatever. I mean, you know, talking about his brother's winky. I don't. I really don't think he should have gone there. But anyway, look, I, I, I sort of felt quite sorry for him in a way. And uh, and then I had this dream last night. And this was weird because he was like, you know, how you dream about people who you know, but who are other people. So yeah. it was my, it was my, God, he's going to be embarrassed. It was my brother-in-law and his wife uh-huh. and his wife was Megan and right. he, and my brother-in-law was Harry and okay. they, were visit, they were visiting us as Harry and Megan, but as my brother-in-law and his wife. And, uh, and it was quite nice to chat to Harry actually in the dream. And I thought, you know, you, I feel, feel a bit sorry for you in yeah. some ways, you know, and, and my God, this is a, this is a Peter Rabbit rabbit warren that Isn't i've gone it? down here I, I, but and i think, I and I think as like your I... gp i should draw you back and let's, i feel like let's i think... need to share um what was i saying we were talking <laughs> yeah we were talking about public satisfaction anyway and the british press and i just wonder you know is this sort of one of those half full stories that they love to jump on or is there something more here so look I, I think you've got something i'm not going to pick up on the prince harry side of things mm. although apparently he is very good to chat to i'm reliably informed but this so this attitudes thing is a lot of this is about access, about getting to a healthcare professional. Uh, once yeah. you get through the door, once you get your appointment and into the system, satisfaction levels are actually very high. Our healthcare professionals in the UK are trained to very high standards. They're almost invariably compassionate, caring people who really want to do their best for individuals. So, I mean, it's a nightmare to get an NHS dental appointment. Once you get one, you get great dental care. By and large, when you get through to a door to a GP surgery, that is exactly what I hear day in, day out. And we get some gorgeous messages from patients thanking us uh, for what we do for them. But also the access is a challenge. It is a problem. Just yesterday, my taxi driver was telling me his wife hasn't been very well. And I said, you need to get her seen by the GP or somebody at the surgery. It sounds like she needs some antibiotics. And he said, we tried 28, uh, no, sorry, not 28, 98 times this morning. And he showed me his phone where they'd been trying 98 times. And so there are things we can do better. You know, there should be systems of callback, automated callback systems. You don't need to be sitting there pressing redial 98 times once you try at 8 a.m. in the morning to get in. There should be systems where she should have been told there are other ways and other places to go. There are walk-in centres you can go to to get treated for things like potential infections. And so I think, you know, there's a communication piece. So on the access then, Mm. uh, which sort of moves us neatly on to... We're recording this on the 30th of March. See, this is not just thrown together. Uh, this We're recording this on the 30th of March. I I think that in imminently, shall we say, um, shortly, as they used to tell me when I was a minister to say, just say shortly, just say it'll be published shortly. Shortly, uh, the prime minister is going to publish his primary care plan. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure what exam question it seeks to answer, but I think one of them is that access. It's the 8am scramble, right? Uh, that people hate um, as times access in GPs. What a, I know this is a big question, but what would be your three big asks of the Rish if you were to ask him for his primary care plan? You see, 
I would be asking for a plan that is far more than just about access. But my understanding is that this plan is all about improved access. So, so let's just focus it down and say, let's say it is a GP access plan, not a fixing GP plan, that I'd be looking for a huge nod to the whole workforce challenges. So what's the plan for improving workforce? Because we just haven't got enough doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals in general practice. That's just a fact. There's no ambiguity there. In parallel, we're desperately waiting on an NHS workforce plan. And there's been some toing and froing as to when we're going to get that. Is it going to contain numbers in it? And how? And what's the financial plan for looking to, to fix that in time so there's so certainly it's about numbers there's something about technology and improving the quality of technology whether that's the telephony whether that's the systems that we use I mean in fairness we improved our use of technology in general practice more in 10 days than we had in 10 years previously when the pandemic started but there's so much further to go things are still clunky use of the NHS app is still variable and so on so there's this there's technology piece and I think there's something for me about the communication piece and how we help people work together with their practices better and engage with their practices better. And that's not just about GPs, that's about the whole system. I've got a patient participation group in my practice who are great and have bring good ideas all the time. But I think there is a huge untapped potential in the public for engaging and being actively involved in the care and the services that are offered. But it does take a bit of a leap of faith. It takes clinicians and the NHS to trust the public and it takes people out in the public to step up and, and, and offer and be prepared to help in a constructive way, understanding the limitations of the service we've got to deliver. Yeah. OK, well, well said. Now, you want to talk about nitrous oxide, didn't you? Yeah, well, that's been in the news this week, hasn't it? Nitrous oxide. I mean, I don't know. How, is this one of those things that hits your mailbox? Uh, yeah. And not, not just that, it, hit, it hits my grabber uh, because I, I go out in my... Your grabber? Yeah, I have a grabber. Well, tell um, so me I, what I, earth a, is a, a litter-picking litter grabber. Oh. So I go out with the Winchester litter pickers every so often and, um, you know, in, in the city centre and I, yeah. and I, and I with, a big bat, with a big black bag. And you'd be amazed how quickly you fill a big black yeah. bag of litter. Anyway, um, when I started uh, doing it, you know, I would just see these little silver canisters. They yeah. look like a kind of, you know, like the oxygen... Um, people who don't know, like the oxygen tank that divers have on their back, it's like a mini, mini version, a mini me version of them. Yeah. And you just find these all, all over. And it, what they are is nitrous oxide canisters. And it, it is colloquially called laughing gas. I, it annoys me, the title, because I don't think there's anything funny about it, especially when you've got teenage children and people take it to get high. Um, yeah. sort of part of the you know what what can we what can we do to get high so basically the government announced this week on monday a anti-social behavior plan the prime minister announced it. it was it was everywhere i was actually in Downing street on tuesday for a, a an anti-social behavior round table which was which was incredibly sociable um and with cups <laughs> of tea uh everyone was very well behaved but you know there's lots to this wider plan which we won't go go, go into now but yeah they're gonna introduce um uh, a criminal offence of, of possessing these nitrous oxide canisters because, you know, you do find them in playgrounds and parks where little kids are and they pick them up and they wonder what they are. And this is not good. Have you ever come yeah. across this stuff in medicine? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, from the social and the littering side of it, I nearly broke my ankle standing on one not so long ago. Uh, and certainly, you know, we live in a really lovely rural area, but you do find them at the edges of footpaths, you know, where you can see where kids have obviously clustered to get together and use them. And they always seem to use high volumes 
thousands of them. And that's the thing. She loads them. You don't normally find one or two. There's like a nest of them. I mean, so well, what the do they do? Because it sort of said that they so, intoxicating can damage yeah. young brains and nervous systems. Is that is that what they do? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so they're a drug of abuse and they're most commonly used by people aged 16 to 24. They, they're, they're one of the commonest drugs at that age that they're used. And so, so if you get use it, as you said, you sort of get a euphoria, you get a high, you get giggles, and it's very short lived. It's actually only for if you take a breath, it's only 30 to 60 seconds you get this effect for, which is why they have to keep using them and they use such large volumes of it. But actually, nitrous oxide is, is a really useful medical gas. I mean, it's been used combined with oxygen for dental procedures and medical procedures for, oh, in decades, many decades, I think possibly longer than that. Um, and there are loads of legitimate commercial uses of it. It's used in food additives, as far as I understand. I think it's also used as propellant and an additive in fuel. So we're not talking about a substance that should be banned. We're not talking about a legitimate substance that has been abused. But there are some serious harms beyond the intoxication, because obviously when you have a high or you're intoxicated, you can do stupid things and injure yourself and, and others. But there's also longer term effects because uh, it leads to deficiencies of vitamin B12 and there's loads of other potential harms. But there is some controversy about high, about how far it can go. There's talk about nerve damage or paralysis and so on. I've certainly never come across that clinically as a GP. But, you know, I do wonder myself with some of the kids who I get brought in with mental health difficulties and challenges, if this is something I haven't explicitly asked about. We always gently ask about illicit drug use but this is, hasn't been illicit drug use but will become so very soon um i th certainly think we need to increase the awareness of the dangers of it and i know there's a move to bring it into the school curriculum as part of those um, education uh, courses that children have about the harms of all sorts of addictive substances and alcohol and, and you know inappropriate sexual behaviors so yeah it's um good one to raise good to raise yeah well i mean that they when when they sort of did this uh the government said that they were concerned about the rise in health and social harms particularly yeah. to young people so you know we are prevention being the new cure well Absolutely. if this is part of that then then all, all to the good but you know as ever as ever with policy you know and that's our, that's our job in parliament of course is to is to scrutinize the unintended consequence because you've obviously outlined some of the sensible ways that it's used can I remind people of the brilliant resource, which is a government resource called Talk to Frank, which is an online or a telephone helpline uh, with really good, straightforward, accessible advice about all sorts of illicit drugs and abuse. And, and, and they definitely include nitrous oxide in there. Other names for nitrous oxide, NOS, NOS, or uh, balloons is another term I've heard that called it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Talk to Frank. Yes. Talk we we do. Frank. Our babysitter. Talk to Frank.com. Frank. We, oh. we do talk to Frank. <laughs> quite a lot actually my kid my my son enjoys playing nerf gun wars with frank oh anyway, it's great I, I digress uh anyway uh let's take a quick break welcome back you know what it's time for helen it's time for this oh that's my favorite doorbell i know that means the pod surgery is open 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 helen what do you got I think we should talk about alcohol today, moving from nitrous oxide oh, okay. onto alcohol. And the so who's harms. written to us about that then? Uh, we've had a flurry of people. And, you know, I can't find my bit of paper with a name on them. Have you got the name? Somebody's definitely. Oh, I think yeah. several people have written to us about it over the last few weeks. We've talked about lots of other things that are bad for us. But alcohol is one of those things that is socially acceptable, but also very dangerous from a medical point of view. And I can't be a hypocrite here. I like a drink like the next person does. But the number of people I've seen over the years as patients, um, I mean, clearly there's people who are severely addicted and whose lives are completely destroyed by alcohol. 
But for me, one of the biggest groups in the worrying group, are what I call the high functioning alcoholics. So that's not an official term. That's that's a Hellenism. But these yeah. are people who are really are highly dependent on alcohol, but managed to restrict it to evenings and weekends. So, you know, they go to work, they hold down often very responsible jobs. And then they come home. And the first thing they do, they get in straight to the kitchen, get a glass or a bottle or a can. And um, it's that dependency and that urgency. And the problem with that is that it insidiously gets worse. And then it leads to domestic challenge, which then in turn goes on to, you know, affecting work. And once you start to get to that, it can be a house of cards. It just falls down pretty fast. So and loads of medical harms, of course, of alcohol. I'm sure you come across this in your work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the Alcohol Health Alliance are quite, quite good in this space. I mean, some of the figures that I've sort of seen from them, you know, it's the biggest risk factor for early mortality, for yeah. ill health, disability among 15 to 49 year olds. You know, there's a, it plays a casual role in more than 200 different diseases and injuries. Yeah. It's linked to at least at least seven cancers in including at least, two of the I most, think it's more than that. Yeah. Including two of the most common, which is obviously breast and bowel. Yeah. Um, it's yeah I mean I've just been reading a book actually by by my good friend Adrian Childs um you know on Five Live and does does various other things um it's called The Good Drinker uh how how I learned to love drinking less and you know what he talks about is normalized drinking you know he grew up he grew up in a in a society in a family where it was just what you did and then, you know, when you got to be a teenager, you tried to get hold of drink. And then when you were able to legally drink, it was what you did because it's what yeah. had been done before you. And it's just a really it's a really moving book, actually. It's called it's called The Good Drinker by Adrian Childs. And uh, he he talks about his journey and how he learned to love drinking less. And I just would say that, yeah, it, I, I, I'm not a I'm not a big drinker. Uh, I don't I don't particularly enjoy it I you know I enjoy it sometimes but but in in moderation but I can see how for some people it becomes a crutch and then it becomes a problem and and then you see the impact of it I mean how often do you have a conversation in your surgery with somebody about their alcohol intake every day every day every day I mean we touch on it in many consultations quite regularly but every day I am speaking to somebody and realizing and teasing out that alcohol is a problem part of their life. I mean, this is a massive issue. You know, one in 10 A&E visits directly related to alcohol harms. Um, uh, one thing we see, impact of unsafe sex, you know, lower your inhibitions, get more likely to have unsafe sex. And the consequences of that are massive. I mean, you've talked about cancers. It weakens your whole immune system. So it makes you as well as more prone to a massive range of cancers. And the way I describe it is you put the alcohol in your mouth, it comes out the other end, everywhere it touches in between is increased risk of cancer, as well as breast cancers and damaging your brain as well. So, you know, association with depression, dementia, um, can lead to all sorts of issues with, with impotence and premature ejaculation and so on. So there's, there's loads of stuff that's bad. Yeah. So my way of framing it, I don't know if you think this is helpful, but is if you need a drink, you've got to stop and think. So if you need a drink, not, not, not have a drink, if you need a drink, if why, why do you need a drink? Are you just thirsty? If you're just thirsty, get some water, get some juice, get a cup of tea. Are you stressed? If you're stressed, there are far better ways of dealing with your stress than reaching for the bottle. Um, and whether that's exercise, whether that's talking to somebody, whether that's tackling the root causes and changing your life around. But the alcohol doesn't solve anything. It's merely a short-term hiding place. Um, 
and I think it, you know and, and is this just becoming habit it's just because of what I always do when I get in the ho- at home in the evening um, and if you think any of those things are an issue then get help now yeah. start talking to people because there's tons of help out there if you're it interested. came uh, the question actually came from an organization called balance northeast who right. you know work to reduce alcohol harm I'm in the, in the northeast and uh, you know they're they're sort of calling for a national alcohol strategy yeah, and, and definitely. Uh, they're, they're talking for you know awareness i think there are exact messages you know why is there no awareness raising campaigns yeah. Yeah. you know we have we have effective tv adverts and online adverts around be clear on cancer for instance and this is obviously a driver of ill health in many ways the, the figure i've got here is that the annual cost of alcohol to the nhs to yeah. nhs england was was last estimated to be about three and a half billion pounds a yeah. year yeah well so, yeah, you know, and, that, and yeah. that's probably a decade old, that figure. So I would imagine that it's probably gone up significantly. And yeah. you know, who, know, who knows how COVID helped or didn't help in, in that respect. So, you know, when we're talking about prevention of ill health, yeah. So the addictions and uh, something the select committee is going to be looking at in, in its prevention inquiry is the different, the, the addictions. We're going to have a work stream called addictions. So that will contain, you know, your smoking, your alcohol, your drugs. Um, and they are, in some ways, they're low hanging fruit, but they're very yeah. hard to, they're very hard to break. And we have to treat it as a, uh, and I'm hosting an event actually in Parliament in the next few months on behalf of the AA. Yeah. Um, who, who I Alcoholics think Anonymous, not the yeah. Automobile it, Association. Exactly. Um, other motorbill organisations are available. Um, and, you know, I, I think it is an illness and I think we need to yeah. treat it that way. Um, far too often it ends up in the criminal justice system, doesn't it? Can I give a, pl- a plug for another brilliant alcohol-related uh, charity who are associated with um, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's Al-Anon, who are the parallel charity who support the family and friends and carers of those with addiction. They're uh, yeah. absolutely brilliant, and I've seen them help so many of my um, patients and, and their loved ones um, because they help people realise that what you have to do is apply tough love. If you've got a, somebody you love and care for who's got an alcohol problem, you have to be tough with them in terms of helping them come to terms deal with a problem if they don't own the problem want to do it themselves you can't do it for them yeah okay well we're going to close um obviously easter is coming so happy easter we will return we will return with the pod after easter and in on the subject of everything in moderation um that's uh presumably the doctor uh, hellenism is the moderation on chocolate Yes, absolutely. You know, for me, I'd go for quality over quantity any day. Um, oh, so, okay. uh, yeah, what sort of Easter egg are you looking for this year? Oh, see, see, I try and be what disciplined, and I, I say, don't get me an Easter egg. But mm. you know, a, a little tasty little bit of hotel chocolate goes down very nicely. But I'm married nice. to a man for whom it's got to be Cadbury's every time. And we, yeah, I do live in the Midlands. You know, Cadbury's yeah. isn't that far away. I'm, I'm looking for the cream egg one this year. When my when my son was little, he thought that the big the big the big egg was full of the Cadbury's cream egg cream, and I I mean that now that now that would not wow. be that wouldn't and he, in fact he asked for that egg for that very reason, and then when there was smaller oh. eggs inside it, he was slightly disappointed. But um you know that would not be moderation. But I'd sing as Monty my three-year-old black lab is laying literally across my feet as we're recording the pod this week. So welcome Monty to the pod. Hey, Monty, uh, that's a good but let's not have the pod pet surgery open this Easter oh, because no. you know what they're like they see this oh. shiny paper and they think hey, dogs and chocolate this is for me and chocolate is of course poison to doggies yes please keep your Easter eggs well away from your pets because uh, yeah definitely that is not something any of us want emergency vet bills are not the extra no, they're really not this fun. Easter. Yeah. anyway look it's been fun uh we will be back after Easter when the, the pod continues so uh thanks very much Helen lovely to thanks, see babe. you God stay bless. safe Bye. Bye for now.